Okay, I'm back again. Sorry. <laughs> I guess is the right word. Um, but no, what a privilege it is to uh, bring the word to you this morning. Thankful to our elders who allowed me this opportunity uh, to look at God's word together uh, with you today. By way of introduction, just to let you know, I went to high school near here, a small Christian school, village Christian schools. Crusaders? All right. You know, I never thought much in high school our name was the Crusaders, but over time I'm understanding more of what the Crusaders did, and it's interesting. (laughs) But I enjoyed my time at Village Christian Schools. I was a lifer, as they call it, K through 12. Went all the way through the program there and uh, enjoyed uh, in the high school years because it was a small school to be on the basketball team. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Had a coach named Mike Henze, and uh, I, I liked my coach. He was um, also the baseball coach, as these things go, at a small school, and he was the uh, father of a good friend of mine as well, so I even went on uh, family vacations uh, with the Henzies to Carpinteria, and it was a good time. And he was a good coach, and I enjoyed playing for him, but one of the funny things about uh, Coach Henze was that he would lose his temper you think, well, that's not a very funny thing, but, uh, but it was the way he did it. It was never crude, never swearing or anything like that, but uh, we would do something stupid out on the court, or one of the baseball players do something stupid, and he would raise his voice. Now, when I say raise his voice, I don't mean he just shouted. He would, in the progress of the sentence, raise his voice. So he would start off slow and then get loud. <laughs> it was always a rising voice. And we all thought it was kind of funny. So he'd be upset, but we're, we're, we're laughing. And it was combined with funny sayings that he would have as well sometimes. One time when I was on a trip, I'll always remember this, his son was looking for something, couldn't find it after he was told where it was, and his dad was, lost his patience a little bit. He said, do I have to draw you a map? <laughs> and, oh, it cracked me up. It's... Uh, but one of my favorites is one we at the baseball team. He was upset once because in baseball, if there's a hit to the outfield and there's a player going to come home, oftentimes you want the outfielder to hit the cutoff man, some guy in the infield who then will throw it to home, more accuracy, more speed on the ball. Um, so there was a hit to the outfield. One of our fielders did it, and he tried to throw it all the way to home without hitting the cutoff man. And, uh, of course, it didn't go well, and Coach Henze uh, just blurted out, Who do you think you are, King Kong? <laughs> you know, and, uh, it's just, so we would repeat that all the time, you know, the following weeks and months. And, unfortunately, for the last 23 years, my wife has uh, <laughs> occasionally have to hear me say that. Um, sorry about that. Uh, But as I was preparing to teach and and thinking about this passage in Daniel chapter 5 is what we're going to look at today, that's the question, who do you think you are? Uh, Not King Kong, we'll leave that off. And that's going to be, that's kind of the sermon title for today, who do you think you are? Uh, It was humorous when Coach Henze said it, but uh, it's a serious question that we need to ask ourselves, who do we think we are? Uh, The problem is we often think way too highly of ourselves. 
we think way too much of ourselves. Uh, Romans 12.3 reminds us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Um, and Paul gives that warning to the Romans because often they would, and we do, think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We readily accept praise from others, but when we receive criticism, we disregard it because they really don't know us. We're proud of our accomplishments, but we blame our failures on others. We take credit when we have obedient children, but if our children disobey, rebellious, well, that's their decision before the Lord. And I'm not talking about my children. They're, they're always obedient. But, um, but easy to take credit to say, oh, I did something right with good kids, and then well, I can't be blamed. Either way, it's, it's the Lord's work. And then also we, we think highly of ourselves, and it shows when we're critical of others but feel like every time we criticize, we're justified. Um, so we, we think too highly of ourselves. And the passage we're going to look at in Daniel 5 is about a king who thinks way too highly of himself. Or in the words of this passage, he exalts himself. And he failed to do... Uh, what he failed to do is to recognize that God is the ruler over all mankind and all man's ways. And our very life breath, his very life breath, was in God's hands. He failed to recognize that. And if you've studied the book of Daniel, you know that a recurring theme in the book of Daniel is God's sovereign rule and how he is far above all kings of this earth, all kingdoms of this earth, and that all men must recognize that. And so that's, that's what the book of Daniel shows us again and again. And, but to say God is in control, and I think a lot of us would say, yeah, we, God's in control. I, I believe that. But sometimes on the outside, it doesn't always look like that, does it? Sometimes as we look at our world, and it seems to be spiraling out of control, uh, whether it's pandemics or elections or wars, all kinds of things going on in the world, we may think, I thought God was supposed to be in control. Um, how is this happening? Is something wrong with my theology? And if you think we have a problem with that, considering our world today, Daniel and some of his friends, they would have had even harder questions to answer as far as really trusting that the Lord's in control. Turn to Daniel chapter 1 first, just to get kind of a setting. Where are we here as we jump into the book of Daniel? And let me read and look in your Bibles here as we look at the first three verses of Daniel chapter 1. It reads, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. And that's where the book of Daniel starts off. Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonian Empire. The temple has been desecrated, items stolen out of the temple, Daniel and his friends have been taken 
from their families, from the land that they have known, and marched all the way across the desert to Babylon. And there they had to learn, they were forced to learn Babylonian literature, language, even their names were changed into Babylonian names, praising false gods, from names that praise the true God to names that praise false gods. If there was anyone who thought, where is God in all this? You would think Daniel would. Um, Those are much difficult circumstances than we find ourselves today. And yet Daniel's faith did not waver. He continued to trust in God and understand that God's in control, even when the world seems to be falling apart all around him. And again and again, we see that God is there with Daniel, not necessarily always rescuing him from his trials, but sustaining him in his trials and giving him strength to trust him, to be bold for him, even when the trials are happening. So we see this in the book of Daniel, and Daniel does a great job of trusting in God and believing in his sovereignty. But the kings of Babylon don't do such a good job. They aren't trusting in God. And God continues to humble these kings again and again. And what we'll see in this passage today, it can be summed up in a simple truth. And this is from 1 Peter. It kind of forms our, our thesis statement for today. This is the truth that we'll find demonstrated in Daniel 5. And it's from 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. That is the bottom line truth that we will see in this passage and that we need to walk away with. Now, what we're going to see in Daniel 5 is a narrative that shows this played out, how God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, and how we need to humble ourselves in the mighty hand of God. And I think it's great that so often God puts things in narrative form. He recounts this historical events to let these lessons always stick in our minds and stick in our hearts. But the point is this, and we must not miss this as we study this text. It's not just a story. It's not just interesting to find out about this king's sin, about a miracle, about Babylon falling. Ultimately, we need to learn the lesson that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt us at the proper time. So let's look at Daniel chapter 5 together. And, you know, I think what's helpful sometimes when we have a narrative like this is just to read the whole story. So let me read this chapter for you. It's kind of long, but I'll do my best in my reading and uh, follow along in your Bible and um, really understand what's being told to us here. So Daniel 5, starting in chapter in verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his kids might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. 
And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the finger, fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand and what did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king's king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whoever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from the royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. 
and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand that was sent from him in this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mina, Mina, Tikal, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mina, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tikal, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius, Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age of 62. What a story. And not just a story, a historical account that we read here. This was uh, an amazing event, a miraculous event, about the fall of Babylon, the final king of Babylon and its fall. And as we walk through this passage, I want to give you a brief outline, and I did it on PowerPoint here so it's easy to follow, but it just provides a structure for you as, as we look through this text a little closer. So the first thing... Let me turn this on. Look at that. The first thing we're going to see in the first four verses is an arrogant party. So that's how this starts out. We see an arrogant party. And the chapter starts out, the very first words here, Belshazzar the king. Well, who is Belshazzar the king? Up till now in Daniel, he has not been discussed. Where does this guy come from? The last we saw in chapter 4, it was Nebuchadnezzar the king. And suddenly we have Belshazzar. Well, from extra biblical information, uh, we know that Belshazzar is actually the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, during the fall of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar were co-regents. They both were king. But see, here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't like to hang around Babylon. He often lived in other cities. Uh, one of the main reasons for this um, was that his mom was a high priestess in Haran, and uh, Nabonidus was loyal to his mom, which is a good thing, uh, except when they're worshiping a false god, uh, then not so good. But he went with his mom to Haran, worshiped this false god, this moon god. And so Belshazzar often acted as king in uh, his dad's absence. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. Now, you're saying Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we just saw in the text, it mentions that Nebuchadnezzar is his father. What's going on here? 
And in fact, it doesn't just mention it once. If you were paying attention as who read the chapter, it's seven times we read your father or Belshazzar, the son. Well, the reason for that is simple. Uh, in our day and age, we always call son, father, and then we have grandfather. But in ancient Near East, if you're in the same line, you're still seen as one of the fathers. And we even see this in the Old Testament, the fathers. Well, Belshazzar is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So it would not be inaccurate in any way at that time to call Nebuchadnezzar his father. He's in the line of Nebuchadnezzar. He is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And again, we see that mentioned many times, saying that Nebuchadnezzar is your father. Uh, we see it uh, in verse 11. It's mentioned three times, uh, repeated again and again. Why does the author say this so many times? You know, didn't we get it in verse 2? Did he have, the author repeat it, have to repeat it six more times? Well, I think there's a point being made here. Anytime there's repetition in a text, what's the point? Why is this being repeated? The point is, Belshazzar knew Nebuchadnezzar well. It was grandpa, and he knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And we read in this, Daniel reminds Belshazzar again of what happened to his grandfather, how he was humbled. But it's not as if Belshazzar didn't know that. That was his own grandfather that happened to. And the author wants to make it clear that Belshazzar knew full well that God can humble people and that he ought not to be proud. And yet, and yet we see how proud that he was. And that is shown in these first four verses here. Look again, he, he had a drinking party. He uh, was drinking wine in the presence of thousands. And then it says in verse 2, when he tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring in these gold vessels. Well, when the king drinks in front of you, what does that mean? It means you start drinking too. This was uh, not just a casual banquet. Um, again, at Village Christian Schools, we didn't have proms. We had banquets. Uh, it's prom minus dancing. Uh, and I tell you, we didn't have wine either. Um, but this was not just some casual banquet. This was a wild drinking party. And we know that because not only was it Belshazzar and his thousand nobles, but he also had his wives, plural, and concubines drinking there too. This was um, debauchery. This was a awful thing. And what makes this all the more arrogant is knowing that historically, before Babylon fell, Babylon was being attacked by the Medes and Persians. And already at this time, armies of Medes and Persians were surrounding the city of Babylon. And we may think, well, if armies are around you, I think you'd be on high alert, not having drinking parties like this. And, and well, they should have been. But he was so arrogant because he thinks, this is Babylon the Great. We got these thick walls. There's no one who can penetrate these walls. And we have plenty of food supply. Historians say there was like 20 years of food supply. They could withstand a siege for a long time. And what about drinking water? Well, that wasn't a problem because they have the river Euphrates flowing right into the city under the wall and then out of the city under the wall again in such a way that has a constant flow of water for them too. So he was confident. He thought these armies can't defeat us here in Babylon. So he arrogantly has a wild party even when these armies are surrounding his city. But if that's not enough, what does he do in verse 3? 
He has the gold and silver vessels taken out of the temple, what his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, and had them brought in, it says in 3, and his wives and concubines drank from them. Him, The king, nobles, wives, and concubines, they all drank from these holy articles. And this wasn't done because they ran out of solo cups or something like that. It wasn't like, oh, I want to drink something, and it's rude to drink from the bottle, so uh, let's find something to drink out of. No, this was mockery of God. This was direct mockery of God is what he was doing. In his arrogance, he's saying, yes, I am so comfortable. I am not worried about other gods. My grandfather, he was saying everyone needs to worship this God of the, of the Jews. I don't need to. Let's, let's show how much better we are than the God of the Jews. Bring out these vessels. Let's drink from them. And then what else? He praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. He wanted to say, look, you know, I don't need to worship the God of Israel at all. Uh, the false gods I believe in, gods of these materials, that, that is enough for me. So we see just an arrogance here that he has in having this party and using these vessels and just mocking, can God do anything about this? Armies can't do anything. God can't do anything. I'm in control here. Well, that's how it started. A party of drunkenness and mockery of God, but the night was young. We see coming on here a frightening inscription in verses 5 to 9. In the midst of this feast, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall. And usually someone writing on a wall, that's not that frightening. Uh, but if it's a hand not connected to a body, yeah, a little more frightening. Um, and he was terrified, absolutely terrified. And he had every right to be terrified, didn't he? I mean, that's not something you would expect. What is going on? He knew this was supernatural event that's going on. And he was terrified. It says his face grew pale, his thoughts alarmed him. Hips, joints were slack, knees knocking together. He was terrified. What a change, the atmosphere of that room. Can you imagine? Picture yourself there. Here's this wild party going on, and all of a sudden, this handwriting on the wall, it goes dead silent. And everybody just, jaws drop. The king's freaked out. You better not say a word right then. Everyone is scared. And there's this writing on the wall. And this is where we get the English expression, seeing the writing on the wall from, that we use in common day. But it's kind of a fun phrase to use nowadays, but it wasn't anything fun about it uh, when it happened at this time here. But here's the thing, the writing on the wall, but he couldn't read it. He couldn't read it, and he couldn't interpret what it meant. And so that made him even more afraid. And so... He wanted to bring in his conjurers and all his wise men and say, hey, what does this say and interpret it for me? But they couldn't do it. They weren't able to read it. He he even offered rewards to them, didn't he? Uh, Clothed in purple, necklace of gold, third in the kingdom. And we see third in the kingdom means because him and his father were co-regents, right? They were both kings, so he couldn't bring a guy higher than third place. But third in the kingdom. So all these rewards, and he wanted 
to find out what does this mean? But could they do it? No. They couldn't figure it out. And this made Belshazzar even more fearful. He grew even paler, it says in verse 9. And his nobles were perplexed. This was a quite a change in the room. Now, what, what, what will happen now? What's, what's to happen? Well, we see a desperate request here now in verses 10 to 16. Suddenly, the queen comes in, and she has an idea. Now, the queen, again, you know, knowing we're talking about ancient Near East, so this isn't Belshazzar's wife. In fact, some would say it's his mother, but some say it's actually his grandmother, Nebuchadnezzar's wife. The Nebuchadnezzar's dead, but his wife, his, uh, wife is still alive. Um, and she comes in and she says, hey, king, I know about this guy, this guy, Daniel. And she gives him huge praise. Look at verses 11 and 12, the praise that, that uh, she gives to him, that he will, had the spirit of the holy gods. Not totally accurate, but, you know, it was praise. Illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, could perform interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving difficult problems, and that your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians. That this is, the praise that comes out of her lips about Daniel is remarkable, isn't it? What she's saying, what a great guy this Daniel is and how wise he is. And you wonder, okay, if he is this wise, and the queen knew about him, why wasn't he called in sooner? In fact, she says, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Well, why, why is he kind of uh, 11th hour being brought in here? Well, most likely, the reason is, because Daniel's like 81 years old at this point. Not that 81 is old. 81 is still young. Uh, I don't want to start Ralph, my father-in-law. 81 is fine. But, uh, but he's probably retired at this point, is the deal. He's probably, you know, uh, you know, after 80 years old, has retired from ministry. Not that I'm saying that's a good thing to retire at ministry after 80. Don't get me in trouble with that. I think it's great. But that was a godless society, and they made him retire, probably. <laughs> but I love people over 80 ministering. Don't get me in trouble. Uh, but that's what the deal is probably with Daniel. Is he, he has been retired. And so he was kind of forgotten about in some ways, but he lived close enough by where they could bring him in and ask him about this inscription. And as Daniel was brought in before the king, the king repeated uh, the rewards uh, that he would receive. He repeated oh, this high praise we received from the queen about who you are. And so a lot of repetition there to Daniel. But before all this, he asked Daniel a question, something that the queen didn't talk about. But he decides to ask Daniel a certain question in verse 13. And it may seem like, well, what is this question here for? When Daniel was brought in, the first thing the king says is, are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Well, doesn't that seem a little strange? Why is he asking this question? Who cares where the guy is from? If he can read the interpretation or read the inscription and interpret it, hey, I don't care where you're from. But Belshazzar did care. And there's a few reasons he cared. The first thing is he knew Daniel was a Hebrew. 
because his name is Daniel. Daniel is a Hebrew name. That wouldn't be a name. That wasn't the name he was given. The queen mentioned his other name, Belteshazzar, who was more of his Babylonian name, but Daniel's his name. So, so the king knew he was from Hebrew and from, from Judah and was a Hebrew. Now, this would be a little scary because what had Belshazzar just done with items from the temple that was in Judah? He had just desecrated those. So he's like, okay, great. The guy who's coming to read this and interpret it's from Judah. Fantastic. That's just the God I was mocking. Secondly, Daniel's name. What does Daniel's name mean? God is judge. Wow, great. I got now a guy coming in to read this who is from the place I just mocked, the God I just mocked, and his name means God is judge. Uh, I'm sure this didn't give him the warm fuzzies, uh, knowing it was a guy named Daniel, giving this much better a guy from Egypt, uh, maybe, whose name meant uh, the happy good time prophet or something like that, or Joel Osteen or something like that. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help with that one. <laughs> just, just had to get that in. Um, but this is no happy good time prophet or Joel Osteen. This is a prophet of the living God, whose name means God is judge. And he's the one that's going to interpret the writing. And you'll see Belshazzar, the night is suddenly going from bad to worse. And it's not going to get any better. So what we see here now is a condemning interpretation in verses 17 to 28. And this is really the heart of the passage here. And when Daniel gets a chance to speak, the first thing he does is says, keep your reward for yourself. Daniel just says, I'm not going to be influenced by these rewards. I don't need the rewards. Now, at the end, we see eventually the king said, you got to take these rewards. And he takes them. But it's not as if Daniel's message is swayed in any way by these rewards. But then Daniel launches off into what's really a three-point sermon here. And, you know, the king just wanted the, the reading and the interpretation. But Daniel's taken an opportunity here, isn't he? Here's an opportunity to talk about the Most High God, to confront Belshazzar and his arrogance. So he doesn't just read the inscription. He gives a little sermon to Belshazzar and the thousand nobles and wives and concubines who are in the room here. And his three-point sermon talks about the past, the present, and the future. First, in 18 to 21, he wants Belshazzar to consider the past history of arrogance. So starting in verse 18, Daniel recounts the story of Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Talks about what grandeur his grandfather had. He doesn't deny that he had grandeur, but he had it because, verse 18, the Most High God granted that to him. And verse 19, because the grandeur which he, that is God, bestowed on him. First thing that Daniel points out is, look, God is in control, and those who are in control, God grants that power to. And that was true even of your grandfather, who was probably the greatest king of the greatest empire that the world has known. But what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He became arrogant, didn't he? It says in verse 20, his heart was lifted up and his spirit was proud. So he behaved arrogantly. So God judged him. 
He became, Nebuchadnezzar became like a beast of the field, eating grass, living with wild donkeys, and his body drenched with the dew of heaven. This is explained in more detail in chapter 4, and we're not going to go through it in detail, but Daniel wants to remind Belshazzar of what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what happened to your grandfather and how he was proud and God humbled him in this way. And the last verse, last part of verse 21, Nebuchadnezzar finally realized the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over all whom he wishes. That is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned that Belshazzar should have known as well. In fact, look at the end of chapter four, just look up a little bit. Last verse of chapter four, after Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, he praises the God of heaven. Verse 37 of chapter four, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That is the last verse before we get to this account of Belshazzar. That is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to know, but his grandson did not learn it. We better know that lesson. We better not miss that as well. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And you know what? In verse 22, what do we see here? He's getting into the present acts of arrogance by Belshazzar. He says, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. I'm not telling you something new. You knew it, and yet you continue to be proud. You continued to be arrogant. It's not enough to know something. You got to apply it to your life. That was the failure of Belshazzar. He knew God could humble a man, but he did not respond in humility himself. He did not humble his heart. But instead, verse 23, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And he did so by using the vessels of the temple for the drinking party and praising these false gods. And that was the occasion, uh, uh, the outward action that evidenced this arrogance in Belshazzar's heart. But the issue started first in his heart. It wasn't just the actions. It started in his heart. He did not humble his heart, but exalted himself. And then the end of 23, this is really the climax in a lot of ways of the condemnation of Belshazzar. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Here is a reality your every breath, all of your ways are in God's hands, and yet you refuse to glorify him. And that is what Daniel confronts him on. And that is, unfortunately, a lot of people can be condemned for that very thing. In fact, some of us here in this room, perhaps, we must glorify God. In his hands are our very life breath and all of our ways. We must glorify him. Daniel didn't mince words. He didn't beat around the bush. He called him out for his arrogance. And now he's going to read the inscription. And he reads this. 
In verses uh, 25 to 28, Mina, Mina, Tico, you farson. Now you may say, wait a second, it says you farson in 25, or if you have um, ESV, it may say parson. And then it says Perez in verse 28. Uh, how come it's different? Well, one is plural and one is singular. That's what's going on there. Um, so it's plural in verse 25. It's, it's singular in 28. So don't get hung up on that. But these are Arabic words. And Daniel says this is what they mean. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Now, why couldn't, if they're Arabic or Aramaic words, why couldn't the other people read them? Well, you know, these languages often had their consonant system, and the vowels were just pointings on there, and perhaps the vowel pointings weren't there, so it was unclear. And without context, it's difficult to to understand uh, what the consonants could uh, be representing. Uh, but that's not the point. That's not, they could not read it for whatever reason. Possibly the vowels, possibly, you know, in a script that God just blinded their eyes to understanding what it said. We don't know. But we do know that Daniel reads it. And he says this is what it means. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And he says, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to the end. Put it to an end. And he mentions that twice because maybe just to emphasize that point and that it's happening very soon, it will come to an end. He says, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient and that your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Daniel has a word of judgment that's coming upon Belshazzar and it's judgment from God. God is judge is Daniel's name and that's what Daniel's saying. God will judge you for your arrogance that you have not glorified him, so he will judge you. And then we see, finally, in this chapter, is a shocking conclusion. Just three verses, and the account wraps up for us. The first, in verse 29 there, we see Daniel is rewarded. He previously said he didn't want him, but Belshazzar, you know, he made that promise in front of a thousand of his nobles, and all these other people. So he, he feels like he better fulfill this promise that he made, or, or perhaps it was in mockery of Daniel that I'll give you these, but I'm not afraid of what's going to happen. But what does happen there? Verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was slain. We have a quick end to this arrogant king. The passage doesn't give a lot, a lot of details of how that happened, but historically we know what happened that night. The city was surrounded by the Medes and Persians, and they were having difficulty getting in that wall. And they weren't sure, how do you conquer this, this great city? But they had an idea. The Euphrates ran into the city and ran out of it. And if they could lower the water than Euphrates, they could wade through and enter the city under the wall in the riverbed. And so that's what they did. They diverted the water upstream, sent it to some other canals. And as soon as the water was low, they came in both the inlet and outlet of that river into the city and attacked. Now, they probably had inside information, some spies in there that knew it was party night there. And so they're going to, once they get in the walls, they're going to be in good shape and storm the palace. And they did it. 
And historical records say that Babylon fell quickly with very little bloodshed because God was in control. He was bringing judgment on Belshazzar that very night. And that's the means he used it by, was using these armies to sneak in under the wall. And they came quickly, and Belshazzar was judged that night. And then Darius the Mede received the kingdom at age 62. Now, this is a fascinating account. It's uh, interesting to read about. But this, again, this isn't just a story for us to enjoy. This isn't just interesting to read about the fall of Babylon. What do we learn from this? What do we take away uh, from this account? Well, there's two lessons in particular. There's a lot of lessons we can learn from this, but I want to highlight two lessons for us today. And the first is this. God is worthy of glory, and every person must humble themselves before him. Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson. The Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind. But Belshazzar did not. He did not humble his heart. And we must realize every one of us must humble our hearts before God. God is worthy of our glory. He rules over all. In his hand are our life, breath, and all our ways. We must humble ourselves before him. Now, part of that is the humility of first coming to Christ, admitting you're a sinner, recognizing that the best things that you have done are worthless before God. And I don't know if everyone in this room has done that, has completely humbled themselves, admitted, Lord, I I deserve your wrath. And I look to the righteous life of Christ and his payment for sin. But if you have not done that, judgment is coming, just like it came from Belshazzar. Maybe not tonight, but it will come one day unless you humble your heart before God. Unless you recognize that God holds your very life breath and cast yourself on him and ask for Christ's righteousness to take your place. So everyone must do that. And I urge you, if you have not, that you would talk to somebody. Talk to someone you've met today, someone who brought you, or, or myself. Talk to someone about that. But it's not only true, too, when we first come to faith that we are to humble ourselves. This is something we need to do every day. We need to continually humble ourselves before God, don't we? We can quickly become arrogant. The penalty of our sin was paid for by Christ, and yet it's a it lives a slow death in us. We got to be mortifying, killing the sin in us, in our pride, killing it all the time. It's, it's very easy to have different kinds of pride, whether it's a spiritual pride. Oh, look at me and the spiritual things I'm doing. Um, criticism of others is a sign of pride. Lots of ways that pride wells up in our hearts. Let this account of Belshazzar, how he failed to humble his heart, remind each one of us we must humble our hearts on a daily basis. We, we looked in the very beginning at 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And that is true for believers as well as unbelievers. We must 
Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, how do you humble your heart? What does that look like? Okay, humble my heart. Boy, that sounds spiritual. That sounds good. Okay, give me some of that. What does that look like? What does it mean to humble your heart? Well, to live with a humble heart, to humble yourself, means you live in thankfulness rather than complaint. Everything you have is a gift from God. Are the words coming out of your mouth ones of thanksgiving or complaint? If it's complaint, you haven't humbled your heart that day. Live in obedience rather than pride. Obeying God is a great way to humble yourself before him. Obedience to God means, God, your ways are better than mine. And so to humble yourself is saying, Lord, I want to obey you. Prayerfulness. That's a great way to humble your heart before him. Recognizing your dependence upon God on a regular basis. Humble yourself by saying, God, I need you this day. I need you for everything. We need to be always humbling our hearts before him. And so much can be said about humility. It is um, the root of all other virtues. It is in humility that we will live, have harmony among us as believers, that you'll have harmony in your family. It requires humility and always humbling your heart that you don't always have the best way and that you are ready to ask for forgiveness of others, to demonstrate love and not expect things in return. But the first lesson we must learn from this and walk away with is we must humble ourselves before God for he is worthy of it. But the second lesson I want to leave you with is this. Knowing what God has done is not sufficient. You must live according to that truth. That was the case for Belshazzar, wasn't it? He knew about Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what Nebuchadnezzar said, even after he was humbled and repented and restored, that everyone should obey the king of heaven, that in his words, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Belshazzar knew the truth. He had heard it, but it wasn't the knowing that made the difference. Did his life reflect that knowledge? And I think so often we can be filled with a lot of knowledge and our lives not reflect that knowledge. We have to live out what we've been taught. And we've been well taught, praise the Lord, but let's make sure we're living that out in our lives. Our life theology, our practice theology, needs to match our professed theology. Often we can profess some theology, but we don't practice that theology. For example, God is sovereign. Oh yes, I'll check that box. I believe in that. But do we live in fear or live in worry? Well, that seems to contradict what we say that we know. We know the destructive nature of sin from Scripture, don't we? Yeah, I know that. Oh yeah, I'll I'll check that box. But do we tolerate sin in our lives? Do we allow it to continue? even though we know it's destructive? The emptiness of worldliness, and yet, do we often live as money and possessions are really what this life is all about? And the reality of heaven. Yes, we believe as believers we'll be in heaven one day. But do we act day to day? Do we live for those things? Do we work hard for those things that matter in eternity? So many ways that we have a profess theology, that we need to make sure we're living that out. 
Just knowing isn't sufficient. We have to live according to that truth. So I hope that each one of us walk away today remembering that it is in God's hand, our very life breath and all of our ways, and that we need to seek to glorify him in all that we do by living lives of humble obedience uh, to him. So let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for your word and that you included this account, this historical account of what happened in Daniel's condemnation of Belshazzar and the sin of pride that was in that king's heart. Lord, we are um, ashamed to say that the pride shows up in our hearts as well in my own heart. Father, how can we walk in such arrogance and not recognize and depend upon you as we should? Lord, I pray that you would give us a reminder of your greatness, your might, that you hold everything in your hand and we must humble ourselves before you, God. We pray as we go forward this week, and especially as we have Thanksgiving coming up, and Lord, may we truly be thankful to you for all that we have, all that Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we um, are nothing without Christ. And so we pray that we would live lives of humility and humble obedience and joyfulness, uh, trusting in you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.